0: You ready for James to be over with yet? It's a a difficult book for us to go through. This one is particularly hard. Um, As you're turning there, though, whenever I I spend uh, time with a family in the hospital, you can usually expect that something medical uh, is going to find its way into an illustration of sorts. Um, As Kiefer mentioned, and uh, everyone knows that we've been praying for uh, James Faggart, and he's gone home. We need to continue to pray uh, for them. Got a new baby at home, Jude. they got to kind of keep them separated. And so it's kind of a difficult time for, uh, for young parents with two young babies. Um, but We can trust that God will be gracious to them. But as I spent time with them in the hospital, here's my illustration. Doctors have limitations. It's really more of a statement than it is an illustration, but that's, <laughs> that's what it is. Doctors have Um, limitations. Um, One of the most frustrating things in life probably for all of us, if you've been ill or especially if a child has been um, ill, um, there's really only so much that a doctor can do. Uh, When their tests don't reveal the proper diagnosis to determine what the cause of what the illness might be, uh, more tests are given and oftentimes We've felt it in our own family, I have felt it, um, what we end up with are more guesses than anything as to what's, what's causing things. Um, and guesses um, don't often lead to cures, uh, and so that can be a frustrating thing. But unlike our doctors, God doesn't guess about what's ailing us. And that's what we saw in verses 1 through 5 um, of last week, so verse 1 begins, "What." James chapter 4 begins, what causes wars and what causes battles um, among you? And it's particularly in your relationships, your marriages, your friendships, um, relationships within, within the church. Remember, among you, he's talking to Christians. The context in which he is writing is the local um, church. And so what causes your conflicts amongst each other? And he answers, is it not that your passions or your desires are at war within you? And so our conflicts with others are started by and made worse by um, the desires, our selfish ambitions uh, within us, uh, desires for ourselves. James isn't saying that disagreements or differences of opinions or even clashing personalities are the cause of our conflicts or the cause of our quarrels or the cause of of our fights. He lays the blame squarely on our selfish ambitions. And then in verse two, he sort of works it out this way. This is what it looks like. Uh, you want and do not have, so you murder. Uh, James is using, I think, the word murder there in much the same way that his brother did in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 in, in, in there, that, that hate equals um, murder. So we want and we don't have, so we hate. And here, in the context here, hate equals treating people like obstacles that are in our way, um, from keeping us from getting what we want, or they are vehicles being used by us in order for us to sort of hitch along, to get what we want. We saw that earlier in, in James um, chapter 2 primarily. But, but husbands do this to wives. Wives do this to husbands. Friends do this to friends and church members well, we, we do it to each other. Uh, we can practically hate each other in that way, but we can also practically hate God in much the same way. In verse 2, God is seen as an obstacle, so we don't consult him, or we don't pray. You don't have because you don't ask. We don't see God as, as one on our side, so he's an obstacle, and so we don't, or we're self sufficient and believe we can get what we want all on our own. Or we treat God as though he's a genie in a bottle, a vehicle to get what we want, as though he's just obligated to grant our requests when we pray, spending our requests upon our, on ourselves. James says that when we act like that in conflict with others because of our selfish ambitions, because of our conflict really with God's will and our will, we are adulterers. We are friends with the world that hates God. Now, I, I think... Just that brief summary, if you were here last week, we all probably walked away in a way that said, yeah, that's me. That, that's how I've acted. That's how I've treated family, loved ones, people in, in the church. But fortunately for all of us, James doesn't end at what ails us. In verse 6, James begins to share with us what the cure for all of this is and an answer. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, we looked at this last week, really with some brief applications that really didn't go down to verses seven through ten, but that sort of worked back way our way back up through the first five verses. And so, the proud do this, and so by consequence, or in contrast to that, the the humble do this. So, the proud. doesn't know what they need or don't know what they need, and so they need more of God, but they want more of self, don't know what they need. Uh, the proud treasure uh, their own independence, and so because of their treasuring their own independence, they reject God, you don't ask, and you reject others. And then finally, they don't recognize their own sin, and so they obviously do not repent. The humble, in contrast, they know what they need, that they need more of God and less of self. The humble treasures. Not their independence, but their dependence. They treasure the fact, cherish the fact that they are uh, completely reliant upon God. And they are so, they are open to reason with with others. And they recognize their own sins, so they repent. Uh, Those, I think, are some obvious characteristics that we can draw out of the the first five verses of James chapter 4. This is what the humble are like. This is what the proud are like. Um, but this week, we, we take that further. And, and really, he sort of puts it in the form of a command at the end. Not, not, not just that this is what the humble are like, but in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. That's, that's clearly a command, but what does it mean to, to humble ourselves? Well, if we look at those comparisons that we just did between the proud and the humble, I think it's pretty clear the contrast between them is that the proud are all about I, or the proud are all about me, or the proud are all about my desires, selfish ambitions, my passions. Um, and so I quarrel and I battle with those that I, for things that I want, or use them for, to get things that I want. Well, what does humbling ourselves before God then mean if it's I and it's me and it's my passions? Well, it's die to I, it's die to to me, it's die to myself, if, if, if it's my passions within me that are the problem, then it's my passions that must die, if I'm the problem, then I must die, die to myself, live to God, and that's what verses 7 through 10 are really all about, James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows us really how to humble ourselves before God. Shows us how to die to ourselves. And it begins with verse 7, beginning of verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So who is it that are humble, that receive God's grace to mortify the sin, to walk in peace with others? And that's what the grace does, the grace of God. Who receives this grace? Who are the humble, the ones who submit themselves to God? So let me ask a question. Do you like submitting? So wives first, I'll start with you. Do you like submitting to your husbands? Say yes. You should say yes. Children, do you like submitting? Children, do you like submitting to your parents? You should say yes. Employees, do you like submitting to your employers if you work for someone? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's because he works for some, but we'll, we'll go past that, but <laughs> some selfish ambitions coming out there, but um, <laughs> um, church members, do you like submitting to your elders? Everyone say, yes, yes. citizens of America, do you like submitting to your governing authorities? We're all kind of grumbling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, certainly we do not obey our authorities if they command us to do evil. If they command us, whatever those authorities might be, whatever they are, if they command us to disobey God, then, then we don't submit to them. But that's not really what this is about. That's not really why I went through all of those questions. Um, but we generally cringe a bit when we're asked to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. But listen, we cannot be in submission to God if we are not in submission to the authorities that God has placed over us. We cannot be in submission to God if we are not in submission to the governing authorities, whatever they may be, not just government, whatever those authorities might be, unless we're submitted to them. And our inner cringe at those questions about whether or not we like submitting is one proof of how our sinful passions drive us. Wives say, I'll submit to my husband if he pays attention to me or helps me with the kids. No, that's not it. Kids say, I'll submit to my parents when they let me stay up later. That's what I deserve, I'm getting older now. Church members, I'll submit to the elders when they make decisions that I agree with. No. Citizen, i all submit to the government when they reduce my taxes. No. That's how quarrels start. That's how fights start. But submission itself is beautiful. Now, Chris Astudio painted a, a, our submission to others in a beautiful light, I thought, a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, in the lesson that he taught, if you weren't here for that, you can, you know, go online and, and listen to that, but, but submission is beautiful. I'll, I'll prove that in a second, but um, think of our conversion. We, we submitted ourselves to God at our conversion. Now, I need to be clear on one matter as I, as I say that. Submitting to God is a fruit of our conversion. It's not the way that we are converted If we must submit to God in order to be converted or to be born again, then that's a work. And so, lordship salvation gets in some troubles. It's not very reformed. It's it's not a very good picture of God's work monergistically saving us and causing us to respond to Him. But, submission is a fruit of conversion. Um, So listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he's declaring authority. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So again, Christ is declaring his rightful authority over all. He is an authority over all of those whom he chooses to reveal the Father to, and he's then obviously in authority over the, all of those he chooses not to reveal the, the Father to. But, but think of that, that revealing the Father to sort of as in the language of our regeneration. When we are born again. Jesus introduced us to the Father. It's wonderful. But listen to verse 28. So that's 27, declaring his authority. In verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's beautiful. This is how Christ speaks to us in the effectual call. He speaks to to us in places that no one else can hear or speak, only God. Come to me, all of you who are tired and heavy laden and burdened down by by the works of the law. You can't keep it. But here's the good news, I've kept it for you. Come to me and you'll find rest. It's at that moment they are awakened. We are awakened to our greatest need for the very first time and find for the very first time an equivalent hope. And that is, of course, Jesus. He enables us then at that moment to be silent, to shut our mouths with excuses, to shut our mouths to excuses, to shut our mouths to explanations, even rejections of Him. And he enables us to put ourselves into his hands completely and utterly. We are no longer rebels following after driven by sinful passions. We are his friends of his, submitted to God. This is what James is commanding us to continue in. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. And just like at our conversion, we need God's grace, and that's the promise isn't it? He gives it to those who submit to Him. We are still enabled to do just that, to submit to Him. So what does that look like as Christians submitting to God in an ongoing way? Well, God's will is our will. So Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are now servants, and like James, who presents himself as a servant, not as the esteemed brother of the Lord, but as a servant of the Lord, we are servants, and we should see that as our highest honor, that we are now servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1.1. That's our constant lesson. We do not have our own agendas. Our great task is to discover what our Lord wants, and then do it. But this is not merely external, it's internal. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. It's internal. I delight to do your will, O God. Here's an example of merely external versus internal. So Hebrews ten twenty-five: do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Now, we submit externally by coming on Sunday mornings. Lord willing, every Sunday morning. I you know, a lot are sick. But is that all there is in coming? No, we submit externally only. If we stay up late doing what we want, which causes us then to fall asleep <coughs> during church. No, we, we do it externally only. If we stand when the songs are being sung, but we maybe just mouth the words a little bit. Nothing comes from the heart. We do it externally only if we sit down as the word is being preached and maybe look in the direction of the preacher but we don't really listen. That's an external submission only and that's not what God requires. That's not what God commands here. To submit ourselves to God. It's internal. Again, I delight to do your will. That's biblical submission. <coughs> and So forth. Taking it out of that context, if a man is a raging tyrant in the home who lords over his family, he's not in submission to God. If a wife is a nitpicker, she's not in submission to God. If a woman is a gossip in the church, if a man lies to protect his reputation, if a dad exasperates his children, on and on and on it goes, we may have the form of rule of submission to God. But if any of that is true, then we are not submitting ourselves to God. Our joyful surrender to God will be made evident in our daily relationships. How we interact with one another will reveal whether or not we are in submission to God or not. But Jesus is our example. Jesus is always our example. He submitted himself to his earthly parents. Amazing, right? Luke 2.51. Jesus perfectly submitted himself to his Father's will. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. But you know what that means? We are enabled then to submit to God. Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of of our flesh. And so we are enabled to follow after our Lord who perfectly submitted, who thought submission a beautiful thing. We are able to follow after him, delight to be in submission to God and to the authorities that he puts over us. Enabled by the Spirit, by the means of grace, by following after Christ. Secondly, the humble Resist the devil, so that's the end of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This one's really pretty easy. None of us want to submit to the devil, and so we could, from that, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 and read through the, the uh, spiritual warfare and the armor of God, which would be a right thing to do. We did that when we obviously went through the, the book of Ephesians, but the context here makes it very simple for us. And in this context, resist the devil and he will flee from you, is is sandwiched by two other commands that I think give meaning to this. And so the first one is submit to God, then it becomes resist the devil in the middle and following that is draw near to God. And so those are two sides of the same coin. To resist the devil, you draw near to God. And that's the focus. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 Paul says it this way, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now there's there's a context surrounding verse 27 there, but he's talking about giving the opportunity, giving an opportunity for the the devil to create division. And so around that context, we can have discontentment, envy, quarrels, fights, are all opportunities for the devil. Anger is an opportunity for the devil. And so James chapter 4 Selfish ambition and jealousy, those are, those are all opportunities for the devil. And So how, does this, how are these opportunities for the devil? And so you as a husband, you come home from a long day of work and your wife doesn't have dinner ready because she's been watching the kids and she's been you know, doing a hundred other things. But you're tempted to get angry, but you fight that by saying, not today, Satan. Well, it wasn't Satan who didn't cook you dinner. It was your wife who didn't cook you dinner. Don't call your wife Satan. But, more importantly, it doesn't even matter what your wife did or did not do. Really, the war is starting from inside of you. And that's the opportunity for the devil. And so, um, James tells us to, to focus Not on the devil, but focus on God. As Paul does in Ephesians 4, and as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6. So when the devil tries to get an opportunity through our selfish desires, we don't look for Satan under every rock. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. Instead, we're to stand firm, focusing ourselves upon the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, The gospel, shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And so that's how we draw near to God, and that's how we resist the devil, by focusing ourselves upon the one who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who is omnipresent. It's good to be aware of the devil, but to be looking always for the devil will draw you to him, giving opportunities. And so we draw near to God by focusing On God. And Jesus is our example. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan tempts him. He answers, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So he focuses on God, the promise of God, the scriptures of his Father. And so because he has defeated the devil for us, and he has, because of that, we like him are enabled then to resist the devil by drawing near to God, which is the next part. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what does this mean? We, we, we far too often turn this around and make it, and in, 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 in invert it. And we do it to our shame. And so we think to ourselves, I'm really struggling with my anger. My, ra- my relationships are, are in the pits. I, I'm too short-tempered with my wife. I'm easily provoked by my by my children, the elders don't take my advice, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm going to wait for God to, to draw near to me and change my heart. I'm, I'm going to wait for God to, to really take me up onto that spiritual mountain in my, in my quiet times. I'm going to wait for God to flip the switch in my heart, and then I'll get right in all of those relationships. We're waiting for God to do something, but listen, God has already done something. So so what has God done already in terms of all of the things that we've been talking about? Well, first, James 1.18, of His own will He has brought us forth by the word of truth. So what has God done? Well, He's sovereignly drawn near to us and brought us forth out of death out of the bondage of sin, just like He sovereignly brought all of creation into existence. So what has God done? Second half of verse one, eight, chapter 1, verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He's made us new creations, that we are recreated after His image and righteousness and holiness of the truth. Anyone who is in Christ is a New creation, Paul says to the Corinthians. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. What has He done? He's drawn near to us by sending the Spirit to, to dwell within us. What has God done? He's given us everything. Second Peter 1.3, a verse I quote over and over to myself on a daily basis. God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. I have no excuse to be in turmoil with my passions inside of me, to be in conflict with others. To not submit up myself to Him. He's given me everything that pertains to life and godliness. And from the foundation of all that He has done, His command is to live and rest in that and then draw near to Him. That's the command. God has given you everything that you need and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And gives through the means of grace. Every single day the issue is, will I obey him and draw near to him through all the means of grace? So why doesn't God do something with my heart and the conflicts? Why don't you do something? That's the question that James is asking. Why don't you do something? Don't be feelings-based, be command-based. Don't wait to draw to nearer to God until you feel like it. Draw nearer to God because He's commanded it. And so this here, even this, is a call to obedience. It's a call to the means of grace through which He then draws near to us or to our souls. It's a call to rid yourself of all of the things that stifle the means of grace. It's a call to rid yourself of everything that mutes the means of grace. Anything that perverts the means of grace you are to rid yourself of, that's how you draw near to him, through the means of grace. But here's what we say, and I've heard this. Listen to how absurd it is. My my, my scripture reading is dry. You know why? You have too many things from the world in your life that's stifling it. My prayer time is dry. You know why? Why? You're friends with the world. You're either not praying, not praying enough, or you're using your prayers to spend it all on yourself. Make my wife different. Make my husband different. Make my kids different. Make my friends different. Make my job workers different. Whatever. Spending it on ourselves. Instead, we should be praying, change me. Change my heart. All of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Teach me for rebuking. Rebuke me. For correcting. Make my crooked ways straight. For training in righteousness. Oh, that you might train me. God's means of grace are not dry. That's absurd. Listen to those words that come out of our mouths. God's word is dry. It's not dry. Prayer. Communion with God through prayer. How could that be dry? Fellowship with other believers, created in His image and then recreated after His image in righteousness and holiness of the truth. How could that be dry? How dare we? How dare we speak of the means of grace that God has given us for life and godliness in such a disgusting way? Here's the picture, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Go home and read this over and over again, especially when you're dry. Two pictures, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. I've read that to a few of you. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. It's like a tree planted by water and sends out its root by the stream. and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Trust in yourself, trust in man, trust in the world. You're a shrub in a desert. Ever feel that way? I have. It's your fault. It's my fault. trust in the Lord. You're a tree by water, afraid of nothing. People upset us, attack us. doesn't matter. We keep bearing fruit. Why? Because we're trusting in the Lord, not in those people who are attacking us. Not in circumstances, not in a job, not in whatever. God's means of grace are not dry and bare and fruitless. If that's what you think, if that's your experience, rid yourselves of all of the things that distract you, that make you think differently about God and His Word, that make you think differently, feel differently about each other. Rid yourselves of those influences, whatever they are, and immerse yourself in His Word. Drown yourself in His Word, prayer, and He'll draw near to us. That's the promise. And it's make us more like Jesus. When we do that, we'll see our wives as ones to love and serve. As husbands, to, ones to joyfully submit to. As our kids, as blessings from the Lord. and For us to, to nurture, to raise up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. not as obstacles, or as vehicles to fight with, or Try to bend into our wheel. Don't submit to God because Jesus submitted to His Father. Father, resist the devil because Jesus did. Draw nearer to God because God has drawn near to us through Christ. And cleanse your hands, you sinners. They get shorter. If you would turn with me to John chapter 13, quickly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 13. It's after chapter 12, right before 14. We went through John, what, like, was it eight years ago? Well, how long ago was that that we went through? The Gospel of John. Seems like a long time. Remember John 13? I know Nick does. This was very impactful, the passage itself. Right? Um, verses 4 through 10. I'm sorry I put you on the spot. I didn't mean to do that. But 4 through 10. Jesus rose from supper laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do not wash my feet,' Jesus answered. "'What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand.' Peter said to him, "'You shall never wash my feet.' Jesus answered him, "'If I do not wash you, you have no share with me.' Simon Peter rethought this, said to him, "'Lord, not only my feet, (laughs) but also my head.' Uh, my my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, "The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But is completely clean, and you are clean." So again, this is in the context of cleanse your hands, you sinners. Uh, this is one of my favorite parts of 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 of, the, of, of our study of, of John's gospel. The best part is obviously Jesus just doing this. You know, Jews would never let another Jew wash their feet. Their feet are dirty because they wear sandals all the time or they walk around barefoot and everywhere's a dirt road and so their feet are dirty and they enter a house. You don't want dirty feet in your house. But they would never let a Jew wash someone else's feet. They would hire a Gentile slave to do that or a servant because it's beneath a Jew to do that. But here's Jesus taking not only the position of a servant but a Gentile servant kneels down and begins to wash the dirty, grimy feet of his disciples. That's the best part. But second to that, is the interaction between Peter and Jesus. So again, Jesus begins to wash his feet. No, it's beneath you, Jesus. He's answered, well, if I don't, you'll have no part of me. Typical Peter goes ahead and responds with, well, then go ahead and wash everything. Then, <laughs> If that's the case, I'm going to jump right in. His answer next is where we get the parallel to James. The one who has washed from head to toe, does not need to have his whole body cleansed, this is my paraphrase, except for his feet. And So the meaning is, Peter, you are already justified. Your faith in me made you legally righteous and legally innocent before God. You are clean, but you still need to be sanctified, and so every day. It's the same with us. We've been washed by the blood of Christ. By grace, through faith, God sees us through Christ's righteousness. It's amazing. Through Christ's work, we have been made clean before God. But just as someone who goes from house to house, a Jew back then or anybody back then, and walks from house to house, there's dirt in the middle and they have to walk on it. Well, the world we walk in is dirty. The world we live in is dirty. We're called to be salt and light in the world, to the world. And so Sadly, we're going to get dirty. We're going to sin, and so we need our feet and our hands washed, even after we've been made clean. How do we do this? First John 1:9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James' point is we are sinners, and so we need to cleanse our hands. We need to confess our sins. And this is crucial, especially to drawing near to God, because unconfessed sin deadens our communion with God. Unconfessed sin mumbles our prayers. Unconfessed sin veils our eyes as we read the Word of God. It chokes out our joy, our peace. It chokes out our comfort and our contentment. Unconfessed sin gives life to discouragement, discouragement and anguish and to discontentment, which fuels our sinful di- desires for ourselves. To kill those desires, we then need to confess our sins. So, you're struggling in your relationships, other there difficulties in your marriages, in your friendships, church relationships? Pray Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts, which is really next, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the ever- everlasting way. Repent of everything. God shows you. So submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, which is confess your sins and sinful desires, and now purify your hearts. You double-minded. So, so like with cleansed hands, God, Christ has already purified us. But if cleanse your hands had to do with confessing and repenting of the sins we commit, what does the purifying part of our heart have to do with? We've well, already talked about this, double-mindedness back in chapter 1, verse 8. James, James' primary point here is that we need to have our inward thoughts and mot- motives purified or, or singled. <laughs> and since James must be thinking of our hearts here as he is, sinful passions, he's, he's talking about how our affections pull us in, in different directions, our affections for God and then our affections for the world, and we're constantly being tossed here and there and here And it's pulling us apart. When we live like that, there's a constant drag upon our hearts. So maybe Sunday morning we get up and we're committed, we're devoted, we want to go and we worship God, then Monday comes and something happens and we're pulled back into the world. Or one day starts and we're reading our scriptures faithfully and we're praying and then go, go to work that very same day and something happens and we're pulled back into, into the world. And so it's up and down, it's up and down, and it's up and down, and it's up and down. And how can we ever think to get anywhere if that's what we're doing? If our hearts are double, how can we think that we're going to get anywhere? And so we're asking God to purify our hearts. Wisdom from above is first pure. It means singly focused upon God. It's not tainted. It's not mixed with other things. And so we pray. We pray but we also act. I use Philippians 4.8 in almost every counseling session I do. And so you have all of your sinful desires on one side. How you use people, how you hate people, how you do things. In the middle of the paper, you write Ephesians or Philippians 4.8. And then on the other side, you push all of those desires through that, through that verse. And what comes out Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If there's something improper in your affections, write it down on the left side of your paper. Search the scriptures. What should your affections be? Philippians 4.8 will tell you, think on these things. Ask God to show what's wrong in our hearts. The affections that are misplaced or doubled and follow his word. Let the word purify them. Verse 9. Repent with godly sorrow. Be wretched. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is genuine repentance. A vivid expression or picture of godly sorrow. And that's what James is telling us we must do. If we're to be numbered with the humble. To receive God's grace. To kill and mortify these sinful passions. And to walk in peace The peace that Christ has bought for us by his blood. For to do all of that, we must, we must repent of our sins. Have you admitted to yourself any sins since we started James? I've spoken to you, I know you have. Last two weeks. Do you recognize any sins in your hearts? Did you feel this way? Be wretched means be miserable. This is a command. Be miserable. Did you mourn? Did you weep? Have you ever felt like a wretch? Paul spoke of himself that way. Wretched man that I am. He assigned himself the the title of chiefest of all sinners. Publican next to the self-righteous Pharisee who would not even look up to the heavens, burying his head down, beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever felt that? Think outside of the scriptures. Think of the hymn writers. I pour contempt on all my pride. When you see, when you sing those words, you feel that. Amazing grace saved a wretch like me. You feel that? Beneath the cross of Jesus, I see my own worthlessness. Or I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. James is saying, author of Hebrews says that as we approach the Word of God, it's a sword and it'll dive in and it'll cut. And it'll hurt. James is saying hurt. Hurt because of your sin. He's not saying that that's the only emotion we should ever experience. Of course not. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Jesus said, blessed are, joyful are, the poor in spirit. Joyful are even those who mourn over sin. Joy will undoubtedly mark our life. Paul says to rejoice again and again rejoice and again rejoice and again rejoice. We have much to rejoice in. Christ has humbled himself as a servant and died the death we could not die for all of our sins and was raised that we, like him, might walk in the newness of life. We have much to rejoice in. But with so much to rejoice in, done by Christ and Christ alone, when we sin and the scriptures show them to us, we should mourn. The one who is in conflict because of his sinful passions, if he is to humble himself before God, he must feel miserable. He must weep, he must mourn. His laughter must be turned to, to mourning, his joy to gloom. But this is a, is a gift. This godly sorrow that hurts is a gift of God because godly sorrow leads to repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, godly sorrow that leads to repentance leads to no regret. No regret whatsoever. Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. That is absolutely beautiful. should drive us to weep and mourn over our sins. that leads to repentance, that that leads to no regret. Like we should be, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53.3, He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Verse 5 tells us that He carried our sins, but verse 4 says that He also carried our sorrows, that He also carried our griefs. Surely He has borne our griefs. Surely He has carried our sorrows. He carried both our sins and our godly sorrows, our weeping and our mourning. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But because Jesus was a man of sorrows for us who are his, we can then rightly express our sorrow freely to God. Sorrow over our wars and battles in our homes and in our churches Sorrow over our hate that leads to those things. Sorrow over the sinful passions that causes us to to hate our fellow brother. We, we, We can rightly express grief over our adultery, our spiritual adultery, over our friendship with the world. We can rightly do that because Jesus, the man of sorrows for us, and he carried our griefs. So... Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's what this looks like. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Weep and mourn. That's what it looks like. If you're in conflict, that's what humbling yourself before the Lord looks like. And then he gives grace beginning of the passage, verse 6. He gives grace to the humble. Grace for all of these things, but grace to become more like Christ. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then it ends this way and he will exalt you. Some commentators say don't read that part. They don't say don't read it but they spend about this much you know, all of this like you know, like Kiefer was kind of talking about this morning pages and pages on some things but, but only a little bit on this. Like I don't want to get you off track. Don't, don't think about rewards. <laughs> it says it though. It's amazing. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does this mean? Well it could mean Romans 8, 28 through 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's big picture stuff. Our glorification, that's what Paul is talking about here, happens when we get our glorified bodies in the new heavens and new earth. And so the big picture is those who God chose before the foundation of the earth will in the new heavens and new earth be glorified. Those whom he chose before the foundation of the earth will be glorified in the new heavens and the new earth in our glorified bodies. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It is the humble that God will glorify. It's an amazing truth. Far too much for us to believe much less proclaim if it weren't in the scriptures. It would sound arrogant. It would sound almost health and wealth (laughs) if it wasn't in the scriptures. Far too good for those who war in battle with those who Christ has bought peace for us with. It's far too good for the bride of Christ who commits spiritual adultery. It's far too good for us who are called friends of God yet act like enemies of God. It's far too good. But there it is. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our adultery, spiritual adultery, our friendship with the world cannot change it if we are his. Cannot change that fact if we are his. The Spirit inspired Paul to say glorified in the past tense, not will be glorified in the future tense. Why? Because our glory for the future was purchased... By Christ upon the cross and sealed for us with the gift of the Spirit. We will be glorified. He will exalt us. Crazy. (laughs) It's mind blowing. But there's also a sense in that God does that now exalt us or lift us up. So this is my encouragement to us who should weep and mourn. Listen. For the humble who are miserable, Whose laughter has been turned to grieving, whose joy has been turned to gloom. Listen, Kiefer read from Isaiah 40, verse 1 Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double good for all her sins. Lift it up. Luke 4, 18 through 19, I think I have it wrong in your outlines. Jesus says this of himself, for why he was sent, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Indeed, lift it up. Psalm 35, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but God is merciful. We may weep, and we may wail, and we may mourn over our sins, and we should. They are reprehensible before God. They are contrary to everything that God has given us and to avail ourselves of, that we might live, that we might be Godly or follow after Christ. but with our weeping and our wailing, He will lift us up. for with the forgiveness of sin, joy comes in the morning. One more. Psalm 16:11. We submit ourselves to God. we resist the devil by drawing near to Him through, through, through the means of grace. We confess our sins, we turn, turn away from our sinful passions with godly sorrow. He will draw near to us. Psalm 1611. We will be lifted up from our sorrow and rejoice. Why? Because in His presence is the fullness of joy. At His right hand our pleasures forevermore. And that's your motivation. That's your drive to put to death the sinful passions. lead you to conflict, that leads you to your kingdom versus God's. Pleasure can only be found at God's right hand. Fullness of joy can be only found in His presence and His promises that if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, And this is a should be a terrifying passage for you. For for the weeping and the mourning will extend for eternity for you, accompanied with gnashing of teeth. For the God that exalts, exalts, sorry, exalts those who are his, as he exalts his people in the new heavens and new earth, he squeezes those who are not his, in hell for all eternity. It's his hand. It's his boot on your neck. And there will be no relief. And so the call here is to find refuge in Jesus Christ. And that's my call to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for James chapter 4 in very difficult texts. It's been an emotional couple of days for me to work through, through these verses. Aware of my own sin. Made to mourn and weep. But I thank you, Father, that you Cause that through your word. I pray the same for all of us who are already yours here. I pray that we would take the lessons of James very seriously, that we would look at ourselves in the mirror of your word, and we would see where we fail, where we have harmful ways in us, and that we would look to you for the grace that we need to put these sins to death. And Father, I pray... And we would do just that, that we would humble ourselves before you. Father, we thank you and we love you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.